according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn the scripture as we get started to Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. Getting our second look at Elizabeth's song in verses 39 through 45, and then moving on ahead to the song of Mary, commonly known as the Magnificat, in uh, the following verses, verses 46 through 55. Before we begin any of that, though, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that we are filled with the Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. We ask, Father, for your hand of blessing upon us this morning as we assemble together to receive instruction. We ask, Father, that you would put a hedge of protection about us, protect us from those that would come in here and seek to do us harm. We ask, Father, for distractions to be set aside and that you would give us concentration upon the truth of your word. And we thank you for all these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, one item uh, for prayer request this morning. I got a uh, email from uh, the Acostas. Stacy Marbot is having some heart problems once again, and uh, may be coming to Austin this week or next to have uh, a pacemaker reinserted. And this is a lady that's younger than me, <laughs> but she's had heart problems all her life. Uh, has had pacemaker for a period of time, but they ended up having to remove it. And uh, she's been without it now for about a year. Um, but they're concerned that she can't, that her heart needs it basically to keep functioning and so they want to put it back in. But the staph infection that nearly killed her last year is still sitting there uh, ready to explode once again and inserting a foreign object into her body is likely to trigger that once again. So they're... Uh, they're concerned, <laughs> needless to say. Doctors are very concerned whenever they might be the responsible party for something like that happening. In other words, the heart doctor doesn't want to be the one to put, put the pacemaker back in if that's the event that triggers the staph infection which kills her. See? And, and all of it is simply doctors afraid of lawsuits and afraid of being the one blamed. And, and so what they like to do is consult they like to get other opinions, and they would ultimately like for somebody else to be the one to to do it, <laughs> so that they're the one who's held accountable when something happens. And I don't think, uh, although the one doctor is a born again Christian, I don't think the whole the whole team truly understands what Stacy and, and Howard's approach to to the whole thing is. Anyway, they're they're approaching it on the basis of divine grace and on the basis of divine viewpoint. And they realize when, when her days are up, her days are up, and, and uh, they have all the divine viewpoint involved to uh, have confidence in that circumstance. But in any event, pray for the uh, Marbots. Howard Marbot is the Army Captain at Fort Hood, and uh, his wife Stacy. They have a little girl named Mariah who's about six, I think, at this point, and uh, an a infant son who's just had his first birth. They might be approaching to some, some point like that. All right, Luke chapter 1 this morning. After the announcements, uh, Gabriel uh, came and gave the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to his father Zacharias, and then Gabriel goes to the Virgin and gives the announcement to Mary concerning the pending birth of Christ. After these events, Mary then picks up and moves to the hill country of Judah. And uh, in verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and, the, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment 
of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. All right, this is the passage that we began last week and we'll conclude here this morning before we move on to verses 46 and following and get a look at Mary and the song that she offers forth in uh, in those particular verses. I find it remarkable that in the ministry of John the Baptist, his work assignment was to identify the Christ. And we tend to zero in on the baptism event at the River Jordan with the heavens opening up and the Spirit of God descending as a dove and the proclamation, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, uh, and, and with that event, effectively, John the Baptist has completed his mission. He has announced the coming of the Christ. He has announced the, uh, the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and very quickly will actually remove himself or be removed from ministry. And he told his disciples that. I think one of the greatest passages on humility is the one there in John uh, where he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And the Baptist understood that his ministry was over once... Uh, Jesus Christ began his earthly ministry. So we focus in on that baptism event at the River Jordan, but in reality, um, John the Baptist identified the Christ prior to that. He identified the Christ in the womb, we might say, by virtue of this event here, by virtue of identifying the mother of the humanity of Jesus Christ uh, prior to even the birth of Christ. And it's quite interesting the, the way the Father made it very clear with the multitude of witnesses to the birth of his son in terms of angelic announcements, in terms of speaking to his mother here in Luke 1, uh, the announcement to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, that's an event we'll get to shortly, um, and even testifying to the uh, to the pregnancy of Mary while Christ was still in the womb, uh, which is what happens here as the as the baby leaps in the womb for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. But then on into the events following the birth itself, with the shepherds, with the uh, with the wise men, with all of the variety of witnesses that the Father uh, allowed to testify with respect to the most significant event in human history. And so I find that rather remarkable as well. We have given four points of study on this and really have come close to completing this actual event. Uh, under point one, we showed you that Mary was a Galilean from Nazareth, but her kinsmen, Zacharias and Elizabeth, lived in the hill country of Judah. And so the necessity to pick up and travel and spend some time was certainly there. And we find out that she spends uh, at least three months there. As it says in verse 56, Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. The idiom that's used quite often in Luke for about um, is is really kind of loose. And, and maybe the better English phrase for it would be at least. And sometimes it could be more than at least, for example. The, the estimation uh, that, that Jesus was about 30 years of age, for example, uh, is really better rendered at least 30 years of age and could have been up to even including, say, 34 or 35 by the time he began his earthly ministry. We'll, ta- we'll tackle that when we get to the baptism event uh, in its due course. But she stayed at least three months or about three months. In other words, having arrived at the sixth month, she stays for the duration of the pregnancy. She stays until such time as Elizabeth delivers and, uh, and then returns to her home. Under point two, John the Brephos was filled with the Holy Spirit first, followed by Elizabeth, followed by Zacharias. We spent some time to show you the order of the filling. In fact, it was the baby, the Brephos, who was the first to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not a believer yet. I want to make that very clear. John still has to get born. He still has to grow. He still has to reach the age of accountability. He still has to have the gospel explained to him, which in the Old Testament was the gospel of the coming Christ. You and I give the gospel about the Christ who came, about the Christ who died on the cross, about the Christ who removed our sin. But before the cross, evangelism was about the coming Christ, the the Messiah who is going to come, the Messiah who will crush the serpent's head, the Messiah who will deal with the sin problem and restore fallen humanity back to a right relationship with God the Father. And so John the Brephos has to get born, he has to grow to the age of accountability, he has to hear the gospel message, and he has to believe by faith. That's the only way anybody can become saved. And yet, in one of the most unique circumstances in all the Bible, an unbeliever is provided with the Holy Spirit, such as is the case here. 
And uh, the order is quite interesting. Of course, the, the brephos was promised to be filled with the Spirit from conception, and that's given in verse 15. We see Elizabeth's filling in verse 41, and Zacharias's filling in verse 67. And we use that pattern from babe to uh, adolescence to mature to show you the pattern of growth that would indeed uh, typify the Christian way of life in our present dispensation. As babes in Christ, members of the church are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And from the very first day we're saved, we are babes in Christ. In fact, 1 Peter 2.2 even uses the term brephos as a newborn babe, as a brephos. Uh, we are long after the pure milk of the word and the Holy Spirit guides us in the truth. Then when we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, we continue to be spirit-filled. And then finally, as mature men, we come to understand God the Father's grace, eternal plan of the ages. We start to understand the overall plan of God from Alpha to Omega. We start to understand what the Father's doing in His plan to glorify Jesus Christ. And so we go from an immature viewpoint to a mature viewpoint where we truly become fellow workers with God the Father active participants in his plan for the maximum glorification of Jesus Christ. We spent some time under point three discussing the fellowship involved. Mary's fellowship with Elizabeth and being a reciprocal type thing, which fellowship is, Elizabeth's fellowship with Mary was centered in the revealed word of God and provided mutual encouragement for their upcoming work assignments. Centered in the revealed word of God. In their case, the revealed word of God came by angelic visitation. Very unique. Of course, we don't have that today. But nevertheless, our fellowship is to be centered in the revealed word of God. That is, the content of scripture as given in the, in the completed canon. That is the basis for our fellowship. Now, I can sit down and chit-chat about baseball. We can talk about the, uh, the Mariners' 4-3 to victory over the Minnesota Twins last night in 16 innings. Uh, but that's not fellowship. That's just chit-chat about baseball. We could talk about it, what, it, what a 16-inning game is like. We could talk about what a 19-inning game is like. I've been to one of those before. But that's not fellowship. You can talk baseball with an unbeliever. You can talk politics with an unbeliever. You can talk any earthly subject with an unbeliever and have um, something that we should not be calling fellowship <laughs> All right. I think the problem is, is we tend to use the words rather interchangeably and rather loosely. That's not fellowship. That's uh, that might be uh, chit chat. That might be uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but let's find another word for it besides fellowship. All right. I'm going to jot myself a note. <laughs> find a better word so I can start using consistency. In fellowship is strictly between two believers. Two believers that are not carnal, but are in fact in fellowship, because our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And if I have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and you have fellowship with the Father and the Son, and we discuss the things of the Lord, that's fellowship. Not talking weather, politics, sports, or any other such thing. If an unbeliever can do it, it's not fellowship. And I'll never forget that quote. That was Dorothy Braun that gave me that one. <laughs> Pastor's wife here for many years. And she said, if an unbeliever can do it, it's not fellowship. And I thought, how true? Because fellowship is a spiritual function and the unbeliever has no spiritual capacity. But they were able to have this fellowship because of angelic visitations, because of revealed word, the promises of pending births. And the old woman, Elizabeth, was promised a birth of a son who would be the, the herald, the forerunner, the promised one coming according to Malachi and Isaiah and the other prophecies of the forerunner. Mary then is given a message that she's going to be, be impregnated. She's going to have a baby and her child is going to be the Christ. And so they have, they have um, common ground in which to discuss the revealed word of God in which to discuss how the word of God is impacting their lives. <laughs> in each case, there's a pregnancy involved. In each case, there is a stewardship responsibility. In each case, there is a, a tremendous responsibility to train up that child in the way he should go. Now, that's overwhelming for any parent. Any child you, you raise, the, the responsibility to give them the gospel, the responsibility to ground them in the truth of the word of God is, uh, is extraordinary. But these two children in particular, more so. I hope you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> If, uh, if Zacharias and Elizabeth blow it 
and they fail to give the gospel. To, I'm just talking about a hypothetical what if now. We know it didn't happen. But let's just assume Zacharias and Elizabeth blow it and they don't raise John the Baptist right. They don't explain the gospel to him. And he grows up and never gets saved and ends up, you know, imagine the worst. <laughs> Running with the crowd from the wrong side of Jerusalem. All right. Doing drugs and running, you know, doing all kinds of other things. You understand the what if I'm trying to present here. How is he going to fulfill his life's work assignment ministry as the herald to announce the Christ? He's not going to do it. <laughs> now, again, we're talking a hypothetical there, and God the Father's in control, and he uh, oversaw Zacharias and Elizabeth and their ministry to train this child, and he was going to make certain that this child grows up and fulfills his work assignment. So, we are looking at fellowship, and we see it here between Mary and Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth already has a work assignment. This is where we ran out of time when I was trying to unfold for you last week um, under this. And I guess I put it under four instead of point three. So let's go ahead and move on to point four. The content of Elizabeth's song communicates several important principles. Now, Elizabeth has the shortest song here in this chapter. And uh, her song, crying out with a loud voice and sad, this is somewhat idiomatic. She wasn't shouting at Mary. This is expressive of actually um, divine utterance, that, that the Holy Spirit is speaking through her in a song that is actually God-breathed and inspired and part of our canon of Scripture. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's the song. <laughs> that's the song. And then she, after the song is complete, she then goes on to question how in the world does she receive grace upon grace blessings. That's verse 43. When grace is added to grace, and then, for benefit of Mary, the explanation in verse 44 of the uh, baby leaping and the joyous event that occurs there. And then the encouragement in verse 45 that not only has Elizabeth been blessed with grace upon grace, but Mary has even greater blessings in store for her in verse 45. So in reality, the song of Elizabeth is strictly limited to verse 42 when we deal with it in this sense. Now, the things that we learn from this. First of all, any blessings we possess are due to the blessings of Christ. When she says, uh, blessed are you among women, we're not going to exalt Mary to some godhood state of, a, of the, 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 the mediatrix of our redemption. And we're not lifting her up as the queen of heaven. And we're not lifting her up. It does not say, blessed are you more than all women. It says, among women by virtue of her bearing the Christ. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. These phrases are linked and cannot be separated. Mary has no blessings apart from these blessings here, apart from the blessings of Christ. It's uh, You cannot exalt the first phrase of that and, and make that the cause of the second phrase. <laughs> All right, Which is what Roman theology tries to do. Mary herself is not um, exalted as the queen of heaven, is not exalted as the sinless perfect one, which is what the Roman approach is, uh, to, to qualify her to be the mother of Christ. Mary does not deserve to be the mother of Christ. Mary is the recipient of grace. And I hope when we taught this over the last three weeks of, of the recipient of grace, when, it, when the angel comes in and says, Hail, favored one, he says, Hail, recipient of grace. And I hope that we made that clear enough. So any blessings we possess are due to the blessings of Christ. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that our spiritual blessings are in the heavenly places in Christ. And the only reason I have even one blessing, much less two, five, ten, or the infinite blessings which we have, is because I'm in Christ. You're in Christ. And this is the promise of Ephesians 1.3. If you're not familiar with it, let's just glance at it real quickly this morning. Ephesians 1.3. What starts the longest sentence in all known Greek literature. Verses 3-14 through 14 is one single sentence. There is no longer sentence in not only the, the Greek New Testament, but in all known Greek literature of the ancient world. There is no sentence of this length. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in 
Christ. So not just one blessing or two blessings or five blessings. Every spiritual blessing is ours. And it's ours because we are in Christ. And it's because Christ is the heir of all things. It's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. So any blessings we possess are due to the blessings of Christ. And uh, we're going to be observing that throughout. It's related here in, in Elizabeth's song. We're going to observe it throughout the context of this entire study. Subpoint B, privileges and work assignment responsibilities are assigned by God on the basis of grace. On the, on the basis of grace. Any privilege you have. And notice privileges are always tied to responsibilities. There's no such thing as a privilege without a responsibility. Not in God's plan. The world tries to promote some. The world tries to have its fun games. The world wants to have... Uh, uh, Fun without responsibility, but that's not the plan of God. You have privileges, but along with those privileges come responsibilities in every single case. Alright? As far as God reveals it. And there's, uh, there's the issues there. We'll be dealing with some of these concepts in the upcoming classes from 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 in particular as we deal with the issues of fornication. We deal with sexual immorality. We deal with what God has established in the boundaries for sexual activity between a husband and a wife in the confines of marriage. The world's approach, though, says, oh, no, 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 no. Don't be silly. And they take, they take the pleasures of sexual activity as just, well, you know, if you want it, go have it. And don't, and then they don't place it within the confines of the work assignment responsibilities of a husband and a wife together in marriage before the Lord. That's just one area. Many, many other areas where the world wants to have the fun and games without the responsibilities. In verse 43, when, when Elizabeth is saying, how has it happened to me? She's quoting even the language of the Psalms, primarily David, in saying, what is man and what is the son of man and how in the world do all these blessings keep coming down? <laughs> it's like the hymn that we sing, how can it be? How can it be? Finite human understanding cannot find any reason for all these grace blessings to be poured down upon us. Because there are no human reasons for all these blessings to be poured down upon us. And so when we ask, how can it be, we're asking effectively a rhetorical question that does not need to be answered. Because the answer itself is understood. The only way it can be is by grace. The only way is by grace. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? This is grace upon grace blessings. It was already a tremendous blessing simply to be the mother of the forerunner. And here's Elizabeth. She's lived all these years. She's an older woman. We don't know how old, but she's old enough that she and, uh, and Zacharias figured they weren't having any children. You know, how long does that take? <laughs> You know, when is it your 10th anniversary, your 20th anniversary, on your 50th wedding anniversary? I mean, at what point in there do you and, and your husband finally figure out, well, you know, I guess the Lord's not going to give us any kids. <laughs> you know, you probably figured out in between, you know, the, the 10th and 50th anniversary in there somewhere. It just becomes obvious. All right. And yet they continue to pray about it. Which we also observed in this chapter when the angel said that she was going to conceive, uh, uh, conceive, the uh, statement is made that uh, it is a response to prayer. As uh, verse 13 points out, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So, however old they were, however long they've been married, they still continue to give it to the Lord and say, Lord, we'd love to have children. Which I find quite interesting. So she has this answer to her prayer. She has this blessing. She's going to be a mother. Not, as, not only is she going to be a mother, but she is going to give birth to a prophet. Realizing that Israel has been without a prophet since Malachi, almost 400 years now. She's going to give birth to a prophet, to the greatest of those born among women. She's going to give birth to the herald, to the forerunner. What a blessing. And that would be uh, a, a pinnacle for anybody. That would be a life's blessing, a life's achievement, the, the, the joy and grace and blessing of being able to raise the forerunner. Uh, and then she could do that work assignment. She could train up this child. She could then die and go to be with the Lord and, and have accomplished an amazing thing in her life. 
And she could look forward to her eternal reward, look forward to hearing well done, look forward to all these things. But on top of all that, while she's still pregnant with the forerunner, God gives her grace upon grace and lets her have even more blessings. He lets her come to meet the mother of, not uh, the mother of the Christ, the mother of the humanity of Jesus Christ. And so, see, she didn't know. I mean, she evidently knew Mary was her cousin, but didn't know that Mary was the virgin that was going to be selected according to the uh, Isaiah prophecy, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. But now Mary comes in. John the Baptist fulfills his work assignment of identifying the Christ. He leaps in her womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. She's given the divine insight to understand that she is looking at the mother of the humanity, looking at... A, a woman who is blessed even more than she is. Even more than she is. And they come on the basis of grace. How has it happened to me? How has it happened to me? Thirdly, or now under this, first of all, sub-point one now. Bearing the forerunner. Bearing the forerunner is a great privilege and work assignment responsibility. That right there alone is incredible. Bearing the forerunner is a great privilege and work assignment responsibility. You know, the true heroes in the scripture oftentimes are the parents of the ones that we consider the heroes in the scripture. You ever think about that? Why parenting is such an awesome responsibility. Why it's vital that we as parents keep ourselves in the Word of God on a daily basis. I mean, we have the story of the three youths in the fiery furnace. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's a great story of faith. Those were young men, boys, probably 10, 12 years old. They had a lot of faith. Where did they learn the Word of God? (laughs) How did they have that faith? How did they have the doctrine of residency to sustain them through that testing? Having been carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, having been kidnapped by the Babylonians, having been held hostage, where did they have that foundation? Obviously, they learned it at home. They learned it in Jerusalem before they were taken captive. Daniel was the same way. Other examples. You got got David out there. Ten years old, watching the sheep, and here comes the lion, here comes the bear. David goes out there by faith and says the battle is the Lord, and he kills the lion, he kills the bear, he saves the sheep. A ten-year-old shepherd boy with doctrine, where did he get that? Well, Jesse and Mrs. Jesse, the parents of David, grounded him in the Word of God. And it goes on and on, many, many examples of that throughout the Old and New Testament. Notice the responsibility here. Again, the message in verses 13 through 17. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. John, Yohanan, uh, from the Hebrew, uh, Yohanan in the Hebrew is an expression of grace. Um, Spell it out for you here. This is how we know it's all about grace. Every step of the way. John. As such, the, the vowel pointing is a little bit different depending on the different spellings that we have. But it starts with the Y and then the C-H-N-N. And Hanan is our word for grace. And with the Yahweh in front of it, we understand that Jehovah has supplied grace. And they're going to name this forerunner, Yahanan. They're going to name him Grace. The grace of Jehovah, the grace of Yahweh. And uh, quite interesting because that wasn't what the family had in mind. <laughs> we haven't gotten this far yet, but when the birth, you can glance down if you like, down to verses 57 and following. And here comes the baby, and on the eighth day they're going to circumcise him in verse 59. And uh, they're going to call him Zacharias Jr. And uh, the mother said, nope, his name's going to be Yohanan. Jehovah has supplied grace. They said, what are you talking about? There's no Johns in your family. And uh, Zacharias writes the note out, because remember he can't talk, spells it out on the tablet, says his name is John, and uh, they're all astonished. Then he's, his tongue is let loose and he's allowed to prophesy and he sings the amazing song that we have at the end of the chapter. 
But notice this responsibility. You will have joy and gladness. Going back to verse 14. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. He would be under a lifelong Nazarite vow, and it's the parent's responsibility to raise him up under those circumstances. He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. He's going to lead the spiritual revival in the nation of Israel. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. They already, Elizabeth already had a tremendous work assignment responsibility. But now ministering to the mother of the Christ, now she has another work assignment responsibility. Not only is she preparing herself to raise up her child, but she now has three months to minister to this young girl. Here's the older woman Elizabeth with three months to minister to Mary. Ministering to the mother of the Christ is another great privilege and work assignment responsibility. Ministering to the mother of the Christ is another great privilege and work assignment responsibility. For three months, it says here in verse 56. For three months, she has the opportunity. Remember, Elizabeth is a daughter of Aaron. She's of the priestly line, married to a priest. She's had, we don't know how many years of, of priestly service and support of her husband. One of the primary roles of the priestly line was to do what? Was to teach the Bible. Bible teachers to the nation of Israel. And she has this time to uh, spend with Mary. And we don't know what scriptures they were in, but I've got a few guesses. <laughs> I would be willing to bet that a uh, virgin shall conceive and bear a son would be one of those verses they're going to be looking at. Other issues involved. Prophecies of the coming forerunner. Prophecies of the coming Christ. Promises of the deliverance of Israel. Issues involved that are brought up in Mary's song in verses 46 through 55. We're going to see in the content of that song, Mary has a tremendous background in the Psalms and other, and other uh, prophecies of the Old Testament. Titus chapter 2 verses 3 through 5 gives us this principle for church age application. Titus chapter 2, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. The older women that have the blessing of having a teaching capacity so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. It's quite remarkable that uh, <laughs> we talk about the automatics. We talk about the uh, things that just kind of happen automatically versus the other things you have to ask for, you have to study, you have to learn, you have to develop. And love... Towards husband and towards children, this is not dealing with Storgos love. This is not motherly love. This is not biological love. You know, it's quite interesting. Husbands are commanded in Ephesians 5 to love their wives. Wives are never commanded to love their husbands. And yet they can be encouraged to do so. They can be instructed to do so. The example can be set and the older women can have that ministry towards the younger women. To love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Titus chapter three, uh, 2, verses 3 through 5, gives the amazing ministry that older women can have to the younger women. And we may not know a lot of the fruit, a lot of the impact that gets born. It may not uh, be born for years to come, and we may not even see that fruit as it's born uh, down the road. The Lord may not, uh, may not uh, let us stick around long enough to see how that bears fruit. But the neat thing about implanting the Word of God within somebody's soul is that it doesn't expire. The Word of God is eternal. It's also divinely powerful. It's omnipotent for the destruction of fortresses. And... Uh, and the things there, I mentioned Dorothy Braun a while ago in this message and uh, the, the fruit that she had 
during her years here and continues to have, continues to bear fruit in the memories of those that, that she ministered to and my wife and, and so forth. I think um, the real blessings of, uh, of my ordination service on November 4th, 1994, when, uh, when uh, in part of it, when uh, Ralph asked Dorothy to come up to the front and, and uh, we were seated, uh, seated on the front row and Dorothy didn't go up to the pulpit and start preaching a Bible class, but she did come to the front as she was asked to do by Pastor Ralph and she stood down there in front of Sharon and I and she had about five minutes where she offered uh, a perspective on a pastor's wife to a pastor's wife, all as a part of my ordination service on November 4th, 1994. And she had words of encouragement, words of wisdom and things to tell uh, a pastor's wife, which Sharon was about to become and and uh, coming from the perspective of somebody who'd been a pastor's wife at that point, nearly, well, I don't know, even know how many years. Ralph just had his 50th anniversary not too long ago as a, as a pastor. And so that bore fruit. But then when Ralph retired, he's now unretired, <laughs> but when he retired at that time, and they moved up to Kansas, and I became the pastor, um... The, one of the most remarkable things I observed at that time was how the older women stepped up. And they're not here this morning, so I, I, I can talk behind their back, but it's, it's okay. It's in love. It's not gossip. <laughs> but Ethel Dowd and, and, and Shirley Newton stepped up in a big way. And knowing that Titus 2 and other pertinent applications of Scripture puts the responsibility on the older women to encourage the younger women. And that Sharon could not be a Dorothy. Point in fact. We're going from a pastor in his 60s to a pastor in his 20s at that time. Alright? And going from the pastor's wife to Sharon, for example. And knowing that it would, be, it would not be fair to expect Sharon to try to be a Dorothy and to expect Sharon to, to pass along all kinds of wisdom to the younger women when she herself was a younger woman. Am I making sense this morning? And so I think um, Ethel and, and uh, Shirley had a wonderful ministry at that time that continued. That continued. See, in any event, <laughs> now it's nine years later and other things have started to happen and younger and younger women are starting to come in and I'm not saying that Sharon's getting old but I'm saying that she and I together are growing older <laughs> which I find quite interesting for the longest time the only people in this church younger than me were the teenagers but the Lord worked that out too so we have ministry. And here is the blessing for Elizabeth. Older woman to younger woman. She's got three months to spend time with this young girl who we don't know how, how old Mary was. 14, 12, 14, 16. They got married and had babies a lot younger in those days. Alright. And she has three months to minister the word of God. Not only to prepare herself to train up the Baptist, but also to encourage Mary because Mary is going to have a work assignment training up Jesus Christ and his humanity. So the blessings are provided. They're provided by grace. Faithfulness in, in little things is, is rewarded by greater opportunities in much bigger things. Principles that we've looked to there. Finally, some point C now. Faith acceptance of the promises of God. This is the third of the three things that Elizabeth's song teaches us. Faith acceptance of the promises of God and humble obedience to the commands of God produces personal happiness in the heart of believers. Faith acceptance. When you simply believe, when you trust the promise that's given, even if the promise is pretty unbelievable, you're an old lady, and the promise is you're going to get pregnant. Or you're a virgin, and the promise is you're going to get pregnant. Those promises may seem to be rather unbelievable. 
but you believe them anyway. You trust anyway because of the character of the one making the promise. Faith acceptance of the promises of God and humble obedience to the commands of God produces personal happiness in the heart of believers. This is verse 45 of Luke 1 where, he, where Elizabeth pronounces Mary Makariah, happy or blessed. Often it's rendered blessed, but I think we need to make our distinctions between the eulagetos blessedness or the eulagia blessings and the makaria happiness. All right, Luke 1, 45. And happy is she, happy is she that is blessed in the terms of the personal soul happiness. What was uh, what's termed inner happiness in the edification complex. Inner happiness is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Mary believed and presented herself for obedience. She said, Behold, the bondservant of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. She had faith acceptance of the promise and she had humble obedience to the commands. Produces happiness. Makaria, the feminine singular of Makarios, number 3107. If you want to do the word study there. If you do the word study on Makarios, you're going to find out something quite interesting. That is the word that is consistently used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. All right. In reality, it's happy, happy, happy in each of those verses. Inner happiness is the blessing of what the Father has provided for those that are attuned to His revealed Word. But I think we're stuck with blessed in those passages. <laughs> Just by virtue of 300 years of King James poetry, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed, 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 and blessed are you when men cast all kinds of insults against you. But the term in, in all of those Beatitudes is makarios, happy provided with spiritual inner happiness despite any other earthly circumstance. Happy is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what the Lord had spoken, of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. See, the promises of God, no matter how unbelievable, and sometimes we get tested in that regard. We know the promise says that He is faithful, will not allow us to be tested beyond that which we're able to bear, but there are occasions in our life when that seems pretty doggone unbelievable. <laughs> We say, the promise says it's not beyond what I can bear, but it sure doesn't look that way. The promise is I will never leave you nor forsake you, but I sure feel abandoned right now. And so we find a lot of times the promises in our humanity are unbelievable, but we believe anyway. We place our trust, our faith, we apply pistis, faith, in the promises of God. Not because... Um, uh, necessarily uh, because we have such great faith ourselves, but because we consider him faithful who promised. Remember, the nature of a faith promise is not how much faith I have. <laughs> See, the charismatics like to do that. They like to make miracles a condition upon how much faith you have. You know, quality of what kind of faith you have. If your faith is strong enough. If you believe hard enough. The nature of faith is not in the person exercising faith. It's grounded in the faithfulness of the one who made the promise. That's what makes the promise worthwhile. This uh, effectively is the same, this principle, this point of study as I drafted it up here and wrote it, is identical to the lyrics of Trust and Obey. <laughs> Did you notice that? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Trust is the faith acceptance of the promise. Obey is humble obedience to the commands of God. And yet we have the song, Trust and Obey, but we have the principle from Luke 1.45, Makariah is she who believed. And this is the provision there. All right? Moving on to Mary's song. And switching slideshows. Mary's Song of Praise, Luke 1, 46-56. And Mary said, 
And Mary said. So we have Elizabeth's song. We have Mary's song. This is the fellowship one towards another, each one expressing the truth of God's word. And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Notice, any any testimony in future generations, any comment that's ever made about Mary, has got to be centered in what God has done. Not what Mary has done, and not what Mary has deserved. Because Mary deserved none of this. The humble state of his bond slave. And uh, the explanation, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, comes in the nature of what he has done. The mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. All of Mary's total praise was what God the Father had done on her behalf. Quite a bit different, isn't it, from how the Roman approach is to exalting Mary for how much she did. Mary's entire song is what God the Father did on her behalf. So we'll break this down for you as well. Point one. Mary's song of praise is commonly referred to as the Magnificat. You might even have that in the margins of your Bible. I have that in the little editorial comment between verse 45 and 46. I got the little publisher blurb in there between verse 45 and 46 that says the Magnificat. You've got little paragraph headings interspersed throughout your Bible. Whatever Bible you're reading is going to have some kind of, some kind of notification. Mary's Song of Praise is commonly referred to as the Magnificat. It comes from the first word of the song in the Latin. Luke 1.46 in the Latin Vulgate reads, Et ait Maria, and Mary said, Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul magnifies the Lord. Literally, magnify soul me, Lord. All right, magnificat anima mea dominum. I'm not a Latin scholar. (laughs) So if you are and I just butchered those words, my apologies. But the first word of the song is magnificat, magnify, exalt. And so this whole song has received that as its title. Point two, her song is similar to that of Hannah's in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. Next week when we come back, we will go back to 1 Samuel 2. We will examine the context of Hannah, the uh, another barren woman, a woman who could have no child, a woman who wrestled with the Lord in prayer, so much so that the priest thought she was drunk. And uh, we'll show you uh, her prayers and how the Lord answered those prayers and how a promised son would then be born. And the promised son becomes one of the greatest Old Testament characters. In fact, when the scripture exalts the two greatest prophets in all Old Testament history, it, it lifts up two people. It says Moses and Samuel. And of all the Old Testament prophets, they were clearly the greatest. So we will look at uh, the song of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and uh, her praise for the Lord in verses 1 through 10. And we will realize, because there are so many similarities in that song to this song, we understand where Mary's Bible reading has been lately. We understand what kind of doctrine Mary had in her soul. We understand her appreciation for the revealed word of God and God's promises and blessings upon uh, on the basis of grace upon his children. But we're going to see far beyond. She's not just mimicking a a song she read and not just mimicking a portion of scripture. She is actually taking a concept and weaving through that material, mainly Davidic Psalms, but other Psalms as well. Not every Psalm quoted here is from one of David's Psalms. But weaving through prophecies from the Psalms, prophecies from Isaiah. All of the, not only direct quotations, but the allusions to the Old Testament that are put in this song here are extraordinary because it shows a it shows a um, a maturity on Mary's part that she has a concept like the song of Hannah and she has other issues from the Psalms and Isaiah and prophecies concerning the coming Christ and she weaves those together into this song here alright and we're going to discuss that next week we're going to discuss it with 
both hands. You know what I mean by that? Because I'm going to say on the one hand, but then I'm also going to say, but on the other hand. <laughs> All right. On the one hand, Mary understood scripture. On the one hand, she had a foundation in the Old Testament. That's clear. But on the other hand, this song here is being produced by God the Holy Spirit under verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. And as such, as a prophetic utterance, it is not necessary for the prophet to know what's going on. <laughs> All right? That's why we have to say on the one hand and on the other hand. Old Testament prophets, in many cases, when they uttered something forth, they didn't know what they were talking about. Because the Holy Spirit was simply using them as the tool to convey a message. And in a lot of cases, they were scared to death when it was all said and done. <laughs> all right? Ezekiel, Daniel, some of these guys, Isaiah, they got through with the prophecy. They were just left shaken in their boots, wondering what was that all about? Now, there's no indication in this text, though, that Mary was left um, uh, speechless or that she was left overwhelmed or she was left scared. All the indication is is that, yes, this is prophetic utterance and clearly it's the Holy Spirit that's giving forth the revealed word of God here. But it is also, I think, evident that it is coming from the framework of her own uh, frame of reference, from her own doctrine that she understands from Old Testament truth. And uh, so we'll, we'll give you both hands next week when we talk about the nature of prophetic utterance. Her song is similar to that of Hannah's in the Old Testament. And thirdly, Mary's song reflects an amazing Old Testament foundation. Mary's song reflects an amazing Old Testament foundation. Similar to Zacharias' song in 67 through 79. When you, read, when you read Zacharias' song, you realize there's a man that had a clear understanding of the workings of God and the grace eternal plan of God of the ages. And uh, we will go through this next week. Mary's song, we will go through the subpoints A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, J, and uh, break those down for you item by item to show you the Old Testament foundation for Mary's song. Do we have any questions? Anything before we close? All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. Again, we lift up Stacy Marbet and ask for your blessing upon the Marbet family, the extended Acosta family. Uh, pray for your blessings, Father, upon uh, her mother as, as Elaine flies down from Minnesota and uh, possibly the sisters as well. Uh, just continue to provide there a witness and a testimony to the doctors that don't really have any answers. Uh, let them observe believers functioning under faith, functioning um, in confidence to your grace eternal plan. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.